You are listening to the Treasuring Christ Church podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. Today begins Advent season, uh, the time of the year that we turn our focus uh, to Christ. In some ways, we could say Christmas is the day that we celebrate the birth of Jesus, but Advent is the season uh, that we reflect on uh, and uh, remember uh, the coming of Christ. Um, the term Advent, uh, if you've heard that term or maybe haven't heard that term before, real, literally just means arrival or coming. Uh, and it, it references the first coming uh, of Jesus. When, when Jesus came, God himself took on flesh and dwelt among us as Emmanuel in fulfillment of the prophecies of Isaiah uh, chapter 7 and, uh, and Isaiah chapter 9 as we saw today. And during Advent, we remember Jesus' first coming, but we also uh, we reflect on not only his first coming, because that's only half of the coming of Jesus uh, that we see in the scriptures, we reflect on his second coming. Uh, in his first coming, he came in the incarnation to be God with us. In his second coming, uh, he will come as the reigning king, and we will go to be with him. And actually, we will be with him uh, in a renewed earth. Uh, and, and during this season, it's really marked by a season of waiting, anticipation, reflecting on Christ. And some of the themes of this season that are rich in the scriptures and rich in Christian history are, are themes like hope, uh, like faith and joy and, and peace. Uh, these things uh, accompany the, the announcement of the birth of Christ. It's the hope of the fulfillment of God's promises. It's the good news of great joy for all people that there is now peace on earth with whom God, uh, among men with whom God is pleased. Uh, this is the, uh, the very promise and the essence of what we celebrate at Christmas. And so uh, this Advent season, as it's so easy to be busy and distracted, as we mentioned at the beginning of our service, with all the things that accompany uh, this time, all the parties, all the gifts, all the decorating, all the eating, all of those things are good, and I pray that you have it all in abundance. But my prayer is that we don't get so busy and so consumed with the trappings of the Advent season that we miss the very essence of what Advent is all about, remembering Christ's first coming and anticipating his second coming. And what we need in the temptation to be busy and distracted is to slow down to reflect on Christ. We, we need to do it as we gather. We need to do it in our personal lives. We need to do it in our families and in our friendships to, to not just rush through the season that we don't reflect on Christ. And so before all of the craziness begins, my prayer is as we kick off this Advent season today and in the coming weeks uh, that you journey with me as we uh, look at the themes that these are often associated with the Advent wreath. If you've done that as a family or as an individual in the past, the lighting of the four candles leading up to Christmas Day and then the, the fifth candle of the Christ candle, remembering and reflecting on Christ's birth. Uh, the, the themes of Advent, hope, faith, joy, and peace. That's what we're going to be talking about in the coming weeks. And today we're going to be talking about hope in Christ. Um, and, and I'll just say this, if you're, if you've, 
practiced Advent in the past, or maybe uh, maybe it's new to you, uh, whichever one, uh, whichever way it finds you. If you're familiar with it, my prayer is that you don't allow it to lead to indifference. Uh, if it's new to you, uh, that uh, you approach it just with a, an eagerness and an earnestness to reflect on Christ. Let's lean in to Advent this year. Let's lean in uh, to considering Christ because it's ultimately what we need most uh, in our lives. Uh, the first Sunday of Advent is, is associated with the, the fulfillment of the prophecies concerning Jesus and the, the hope uh, of God keeping his word and sending a savior for us. And I want us to consider the theme of hope today and consider three points concerning our hope. The first is this, is that our hope is secure because of God's faithfulness. Our hope is secure because of God's faithfulness. Now, at Christmas time, uh, we, we often uh, are preparing to give gifts, right? Uh, on Christmas Day, we open those gifts. Anybody enjoy opening gifts, uh, receiving gifts, right? Uh, giving gifts uh, is uh, such a joy uh, as well. In fact, the very heart of what Christmas is about is not to receive, but to give. Um, and uh, when we give gifts, there's, there's part of us... I'm, I'm, I'm curious, actually, who, who actually likes to be genuinely surprised by their gifts? Like, totally surprised. Some of you? Um, it's interesting because, uh, by and large, we often associate uh, gift-giving with, like, requesting a list from folks because we don't want to surprise them too much, right? Like, we, we don't want to give something to somebody they don't want, something that they don't need, uh, that there's this, and even in ourselves, we're like, I'd kind of like to let you know that maybe I would like this, uh, and I would be surprised if you got it for me on Christmas Day, right? Um, and so some of us, we don't really like surprises, um, and even though we sometimes associate gifts with surprises, when we think about uh, the coming of Christ, uh, the key word for considering Jesus' first coming is not surprise, but it's actually fulfillment. God had already put it down. We have a list of prophecies in the Old Testament, and Jesus is the fulfillment of those prophecies. And we see that our hope is secure because in the coming of Christ, we see the fulfillment of God's promises. And in the fulfillment of God's promises, we know that God is faithful. God is faithful to his word. Consider this, I'll just kind of throw this out broadly. In Matthew chapter 1 through 4, which um, especially in chapters 1 and 2, it takes us through the birth of John the Baptist, who's the forerunner of Christ, and then the birth of Christ, and the, the coming of Christ, and the early childhood of Jesus, and the beginning of his ministry. Throughout Matthew 1 through 4, at least five different Old Testament uh, passages are quoted, and it says, this is in fulfillment uh, concerning Jesus, this is in fulfillment of some Old Testament prophecy concerning the birth uh, of a child from a virgin who will be called Emmanuel, God with us. Uh, concerning uh, the, the location of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, the, the fleeing of Mary and Joseph to, to Egypt because Herod wanted to kill all of the children to and under in the region of Bethlehem. All of these things are in fulfillment of the Scriptures. In the Old Testament, we have promises concerning the Messiah that he will be from the line of Abraham, that he will be from the line of David, that he will be, be born miraculously of a virgin, that he will be born in a place called Bethlehem. All of these things are recorded in the scriptures. And, and as we consider uh, the, the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, one of the reasons, if you've read them, uh, you notice they start with genealogies, which can be somewhat 
uh, you know, boring perhaps. If you don't uh, know what you're tracking along with, you may not uh, kind of get the significance of it. But the reason it begins with genealogies is to remind you of God's faithfulness to his promises. And down throughout the ages, God's promise in the beginning to send from the offspring of a woman in Genesis 3.15, one who would crush the head of Satan and deliver his people from sin, has come to fulfillment through the line of Abraham, through the line of David, in Jesus Christ. All of that to show us God is faithful. He's faithful to His Word. He's faithful to His promises. In fact, when Jesus begins His ministry, uh, we are told that two of those who would, who would become His disciples, Philip and Nathaniel, Philip finds his brother Nathaniel and he says, We found him. The one whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote about. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. We found him. The key word in the first coming of Jesus is not surprise, but fulfillment. We found the one who was promised. And when we think about what hope we have, uh, our hope is grounded in the faithfulness of God. And you think about, you think about all the things we hope for. Uh, all throughout the state of Michigan yesterday, people were hoping for a win. And our hope was only as good as a team could execute, Right? Uh, or the other team could fail to defend. We, we often have our hopes set on any number of different things that something goes our way at work or, or something happens with our family or, uh, or something uh, turns out in the future the way that we want. But all of those things aren't grounded in anything secured. We, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what's going to, to come about. We don't know if we're going to get the defense of Michigan of the first half or the second half. We, we don't know what's going to happen in the, in, the, in the outcome of our lives. So our hope isn't based on those things. Our hope instead is secure because it's based on God's faithfulness. We can look at God's word and consider, has God kept his word? And if he's kept his word in the past, he'll keep his word in the future. So therefore, in the presence, our hope can be secure. That's the confidence of the believer, that our hope isn't awash in the subjectivity of what may come in the future. But our hope is secure in the faithfulness of God. But it's not only secure in the faithfulness of God. According to Isaiah 8, our hope is real in the face of darkness. See, that's a theme uh, throughout the, uh, the prophecy here concerning the birth of the Messiah, a child to be born, a son to be given in Isaiah 9. Uh, is this theme of darkness. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> darkness, in many ways, uh, can be welcome, right? Like you can enjoy the darkness when you want to sleep. That's a good thing. Um, uh, but throughout just in Scripture as well as in our own experience, darkness is often scary, frustrating, and even dangerous. You see, darkness is, is sometimes scary, right? We know that from when we were children, um, uh, you turn off the lights and uh, children generally aren't excited to welcome the darkness. Instead, are scared from the darkness because they don't know what's in the darkness, right? Um, <clears throat> I, I mean, I, I'm sure that none of you as uh, young adults or even grown adults uh, have ever gotten scared in the dark, right? You know, I'm, I'm sure none of you have walked a little faster uh, back to wherever you were going when it was dark, right? Like, I wouldn't ask you to admit that, just as I won't. But uh, darkness can be a little scary sometimes because we don't know what's out there. But also, darkness can be frustrating. Uh, somehow, some way, here in Washtenaw County, 
Uh, my neighborhood, some of you share this experience. We are in this one little triangular area that if the wind blows uh, faster than 10 miles an hour, it is likely that we will lose power. Um, and if it, if it rains too hard or if it snows too much, there's a good chance that my house is going to lose power. And it's going to lose power during nap time when the sound machine is on. And when that sound machine goes off, all the children will wake up. It's going to, we're going to lose power when dinner's on the stove, right? And something's going to happen. I'm, these have happened in the last two months, right? Like I'm just speaking from experience. Darkness can be frustrating. When, when things go dark and things aren't going the way that you wanted, it can be frustrating, but darkness can also be scary. I remember uh, when we lived in Raleigh and we had uh, our first child was a newborn and we had a snowstorm uh, that, I don't, I don't know, in comparison to what snow is here, I don't remember what kind of snowstorm it was, but it was significant enough that we lost power and, of course, when it snows, Uh, Somewhere uh, below Michigan, um, you know, you're like, you don't know what to do. You're paralyzed with uncertainty as to whether you can drive. And uh, we... We, we got enough snow that we, we weren't 100% sure if we could leave our house and make it somewhere else. But I remember our power goes out and it's in that moment as darkness sets on our house and darkness sets on the night that you're without power and in the cold. And all of a sudden you realize it's not very safe to be in the dark. It's not very safe uh, to be without heat. Uh, in the darkness, uh, there are a lot of things that, um, that, that scare us, that frustrate us, and that are dangerous. And here in Isaiah 8.21, it says that darkness is what characterized the people of Israel before the promise of the Messiah. You know, it's interesting. Christmas, as we celebrated, it came to be uh, celebrated in the early church uh, around uh, the time of the the darkest time and day of the year, the winter solstice, Uh, following December 21st or 22nd, whenever uh, it is around there, comes the celebration uh, of the birth of Christ. It's, It's literally in the midst of darkness that we celebrate the arrival of the light of the world. It's why at Christmas that we hang up lights on our houses uh, and put up uh, lights uh, in our windows. It's because in the midst of darkness, Jesus arrived. The light came into the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it, John tells us. You see, the, the celebration of Christmas really cannot fully be understood or appreciated unless we understand and appreciate the reality of darkness. And that in the face of that darkness, there is hope. You see in Isaiah 8, I read starting in verse 21 down through chapter 9, verse 7, we're told that uh, this is a time, if you read the context, in which God is telling Israel because of their unfaithfulness to his covenant, they are going to be taken into exile by the Assyrians. Uh, the Assyrians are, are coming to invade and to, uh, to take away the people of the northern Israel into exile. And as God characterizes the the judgment and the discipline that he's about to bring on Israel, it's characterized this judgment as a, a time of darkness. But in the midst of God's judgment, he's promising that there is a remnant who have believed and who have trusted in his promises that he's going to come and deliver them. And in the midst of the darkness of judgment, God says there is going to be deliverance. And the way he characterizes that deliverance is that deliverance 
is as real as light breaking into darkness, and it's as real as freedom bursting into bondage. He says that there is going to come to those who are walking in darkness, to those who are sitting and living in a land of darkness. The the characterization of darkness here is pretty interesting. If you go back to verse 21, they'll look to the earth. All they'll see is distress, darkness, and gloom. Put that on your Christmas card, right? Um, that's, that's the characterization of what the people saw. He says that they were walking in darkness, that they were living in a land of darkness. But there in the midst of it has dawned a great light. People have seen a great light. And that great light brings joy. And the people rejoice just as at harvest time or as they divide the spoils. It's light coming in to darkness, but also it's characterized as freedom bursting into bondage. Though God is going to bring about the Assyrians to conquer the people of Israel, He's saying there's coming a day when the bondage of the Assyrians will be broken, when the yoke of the oppressor will be broken, just as it was in the day of Midian and the, uh, all of the accompaniments of war, the trampling boot of battle and the bloody garments of war will be burned up because God is going to give the victory. And how in the world is light going to break into darkness? How in the world is is God going to conquer the oppressor and bring about freedom? We see here in a moment he's going to do it through the cry of a baby, through the entrance of a son into the world. But but here in the midst of uh, this darkness, we, we see that there is a real hope. And that's one of the things that I continually am encouraged, and I say this often to you, and I hope you, uh, that you press into this, that one of the reasons I am a Christian, one of the reasons I believe the gospel is because I believe God's word makes sense of the very real darkness that we live in in the world. It tells us the truth about darkness. It tells us the truth about a broken world. And it says that in that real darkness, there's no good denying it. There's no good avoiding it. In the midst of that real darkness, there is real hope. And darkness throughout the scriptures is characterized in a few different ways. One, it's characterized by sin and its consequences. The darkness which Israel sits in is brought about because of their sin and disobedience. Sin leads to darkness. Sin leads to death, scripture says. And consistently, the Bible describes walking in disobedience as walking in darkness. Consider uh, Proverbs 2 says that uh, those who forsake the path of uprightness walk in the ways of darkness. Colossians 1, when it talks about our redemption, uh, Colossians 1 verse 13, it says that we've been delivered from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son Jesus through whom we have redemption. The forgiveness of sins. So apart from the forgiveness of sins through Christ, we live in the domain of darkness, Colossians says. 1 John 1, 5-8, John says, The message we have heard from Him we proclaim to you, God is light and in Him there is no darkness, no sin. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, while we walk in sin, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in light, As He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us, and we wander, in essence, in the darkness. You see, darkness is characterized by sin and consequences. So here we see there's a real hope in the midst of sin and its consequences. I don't know if you feel like that's good news or not, but I know it's good news to me. 
But also, darkness is characterized by suffering and sorrow. You see, as a result of our sin and as a result of living in a broken world because of sin, darkness in the scriptures can be characterized as suffering and sorrow. In fact, in Isaiah 8, 21 through 22, as it describes the sorrow and the groaning of the people, it says that there is distress and darkness and gloom of affliction, of trial. I don't know if you've walked through seasons in your life where because of suffering and sorrow, the, the light of all that's out there, that glitter seems to grow dim and you feel overcome by darkness. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verses 16 through 17 says that this is a grievous evil. Just as we came, so shall we go. What we gain, uh, what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and in anger. One of the struggles of life is that we look out at it and what we see is so much suffering and sorrow. I don't watch the news every day, but it seems like when I do, I'm reminded of why I'm so depressed when I do because it's filled with suffering and sorrow. I've lived long enough that people that I went to school with, now I hear of a person who died from cancer, who got killed in an accident. We, we see death around us. We, we see disappointment and heartbrokenness, broken families, broken relationships and conflict all around us. We, we see suffering near as well as suffering far. Sometimes it's not, it's not even possible, it feels like, to wrap our mind around the suffering that encompasses our world. We, we, we think about the, the tragedy of, of a flood in, uh, in the Midwest somewhere in Kentucky or, uh, or somewhere, uh, somewhere else of a tornado in, in Missouri or Oklahoma. And as real as that suffering and sorrow is, there are literally places that are still underwater and submerged of countries around the world where there literally is no help coming. Suffering and sorrow. That's the big stuff. And what about in your life, Right? What about the sorrows we all face? What about the sufferings we all feel? The stuff that's a little too tender to share. And, and when you do, it brings a tear to your eye because it's hard to, hard to explain, hard to, hard to talk about. Real sorrow, real suffering. I don't know which is more real for you today. The reality of your sin or the reality of your trial. It may be both. I want to encourage us that there's real hope in the face of our sin and there is real hope in the face of our trials. To experience that hope in the face of our sins, we must be honest about the darkness inside of us. But also to experience hope in the midst of our trial, we must not allow the darkness to overcome us. Even if the screen says something like, you must be overcome by the darkness. You cannot allow the darkness to overcome you if you're to experience hope. And yet, is that the full message? Do you, do you really find the fullness of hope by simply being told, don't allow the darkness to overcome you? Or simply, do you really find the fullness of hope by simply saying you have to face the darkness inside of you? No, that's just the starting point. Because the hope is that when we are honest about the darkness inside of us, our sin... We can come to Christ and find forgiveness and that when we don't allow the darkness around us to overcome us, we can find hope and comfort and encouragement and holding on to Christ. You see, because in all of this, the, the real hope we have in the face of darkness is found in a person. It's a person recorded here in Isaiah 9 as a, 
a child to be born, as a son to be given. And the name of this child and the name of this son, the scriptures tell us, is Jesus. Our hope is ultimately found in a person and his name is Jesus. That's our hope in the face of darkness, that a child is to be born, a son is to be given. And we'll see in a moment the names that this child is giving, but the names that this child is given indicate that he's not like any other child. I've welcomed the birth of four children, and I've never described them in these ways. As beautiful as they are, they're never mighty God, everlasting Father, wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace. There's something different about this child, and it's going to be seen in the fullness of Scripture that it's Jesus who is fully God and fully man. The God-man has come, and here we get a glimpse of who he is, and we get a glimpse through his names. It says the speaks of his rule and his reign, that the government will be upon his shoulders. And then it says this, that his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Now, this description of his names really is a reflection both of his character as well as his work, the character and the work of Jesus. I love how one commentator put it in regards uh, to what these names mean. He said, Wonderful Counselor indicates that Jesus will be a supernatural source of extraordinary wisdom. That's good news for those of us who need guidance. It says that he is to be mighty God, which means he will be divinely strong and powerful. Which is really great news for those of us who know we're needy. That he will be called the everlasting father, not to be confused with God the father, but indicating that Jesus will care for his people forever, just as a father cares for his children, which is good news for those who feel alone or unseen. And that he will be called prince of peace, that he will bring about deep restoration and right relationships, which is good news for all of us who lack peace with one another and ultimately with God. This is, this is who Jesus is going uh, to be, who we're going to see him to be. To, to understand him as wonderful counselor and prince of peace, uh, Tim Keller said, how can you not want to worship him? But to understand him as mighty God and everlasting father, how can we not worship him? Who, he who is, has all power and yet in his power chooses to care for us. In fact, as we get to the Gospel of Matthew, the fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah 9, um, Matthew correlates it not with the, exactly the birth of Jesus, but the beginning of Jesus' ministry. When Jesus begins his ministry in Matthew 4, consider this in verse 12. It says, Now they had heard about John being arrested, uh, that Jesus then withdrew to Galilee, and he left Nazareth and went into Capernaum. We've been talking about this in the Gospel of Mark. And it says that this was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death on them, light has dawned. And Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The dawning of the light accompanies the preaching of the gospel by Jesus. The darkness flees in the face of Jesus proclaiming the good news of his arrival. That's the the hope of Christmas, that the light has come in the coming of Jesus. 
And the coming of Jesus reminds us of the good news about not only that he was born miraculously, but what he would do sacrificially in his death and what he would do victoriously in his resurrection. And what he one day will do when he comes again. You see, the real hope that we have in the face of darkness is found in Jesus because in Jesus we find forgiveness of sins. You remember what 1 John um, uh, said about there being forgiveness of sins for those who are in fellowship uh, with Jesus? Listen to how John said it in his gospel in verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave the right to be children of God. To be a child of God is to be forgiven of your sin. In 1 Thessalonians, in reference not only to the first coming of Jesus, but the second coming, it says, You are not in darkness, brothers. If you are in Christ, then we should not walk in darkness, but instead we're children of the light. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 5. Uh, It says, we are children of the light, children of the day. We're not of the night or of the darkness. So let us not sleep, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness, of faith and love, and the helmet of the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain a salvation through our Lord Jesus who died for us. So whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Hope now and hope to come that there's forgiveness of sins in Jesus. But consider this, not only in Jesus do we find forgiveness of sins, but in Jesus we find comfort and confidence in our suffering. Remember this, that Jesus looked in the face of suffering and cried. Jesus looked in the face of suffering and had compassion. Jesus drew near to us in our suffering so that we would know we have a high priest who is like us in every way, yet without sin. So that when we find ourselves in trouble, we might draw near to him and find, we might find grace and help in our time of need. That's who Jesus is. So it should not surprise us that in Jesus we find hope and, and we find comfort and confidence in our suffering. And there are many places that we could go to read and reflect on the hope that we have uh, in Christ, the confidence and the security that we have in Christ in our suffering. But consider what Romans 8 says. In verse 18, it says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed to us. Paul says that all of creation groans, waiting for the revealing of the sons of God because creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that creation itself will be set free from bondage. We live in a broken world longing for restoration just as we live in broken bodies and in broken relationships longing for Jesus' restoration and redemption. And Paul says that not only the creation but ourselves And because we have the spirit who groans within us, we eagerly await for the fullness of our adoption as the sons and daughters of God that we might have redemption of our bodies. It's in this hope that we are saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience, Paul says. And he goes on to say, likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness. 
You see, Jesus comforts and gives us confidence in our suffering in part, and largely in part, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, who is near to us in our weakness and is our helper in our weakness, where we do not know what to pray as we ought. As we ought. I don't know if you've been there in suffering and sorrow, not knowing what to even ask God for. And there the Spirit intercedes on our behalf with groanings too deep for words, and He searches the hearts of what is in the mind of the Spirit, and the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He called. And those whom He called, He justified. And whom He justified, He glorified. And in all of this, Paul concludes with this. Here's the the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And here's the confidence of the love of God. And in Romans 8.31, what shall we say to these things? These uh, present sufferings. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who's going to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, He was raised and now is at the right hand of God. He also intercedes for us. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation? Distress? Persecution? Famine? Nakedness? Hunger? Danger or sword? Not even darkness? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I am sure of this, that nothing, neither death, nor life, nor angels, angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation, whatever darkness you find yourself in, will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. What we find when we read Romans 8 is that our suffering does not negate God's love for us. In fact, it might be in our suffering and our sorrow that we find the depth of God's love for us. We might find the depth of his presence, the depth of his encouragement, the depth of his comfort. See, suffering and sorrow can take everything from you, but it can't take Jesus. He promises to accomplish his will and his work in our life. With Jesus, any suffering can be endured and all suffering will be used to refine his character and his life in us. What mystery is the way of God whose ways are higher than our ways, whose thoughts are higher than our thoughts, but who is our very real forgiveness of sins and who is our very real comfort and security in suffering. You see, the gift of the Son And Isaiah 8 and 9 goes on to be the sacrificial savior of the Gospels and the soon coming king. We we celebrate the first coming of Jesus, remembering what he accomplished in his life, death and resurrection. But we eagerly anticipate his second coming. You see, on the cross, Jesus, the Gospel of Matthew tells us, was plunged into darkness from the sixth hour to the ninth hour as he hung on the cross and he cried out my God my God why have you forsaken me and then he gave up his final breath in the gospel of John it tells us he says it is finished what was happening in the darkness was Jesus was paying the price for our sins 
There's real hope of forgiveness of sins in Jesus. We can trust him to be freed from our sin and come into the marvelous light of his grace. But also, we see that in the valley of the shadow of death and in the darkness of sorrow, there is one who is with us. There is one who is guiding us, and he is a good shepherd, and his name is Jesus. He is there for us. He comforts us. He upholds us. So in our suffering and in our trials, we can hold on to him. And even more, he holds on to us. Our hope is real in the face of sin and in the face of our trials. So this Advent, I pray in your sins that you would run to Jesus to find forgiveness. And in our trials, we would hold on to Jesus. Knowing that he holds on to us. Jesus has come and he's coming again. That's our hope. Let's pray.